Enrollment is open for Thomas's upcoming six-session live online course, Navigating the Levels of Trauma Healing. Explore how to work with the impacts of collective crises and challenges and learn tools to manage anxiety, overwhelm, and nervous system dysregulation during times of accelerated change and disruption. In this all-new curriculum, Thomas and expert guest speakers will engage in ecosystemic practices to collectively explore our resilience, agency, and capacity to stay present and find deeper meaning. Click the link in our show notes to learn more and enroll. Or go to www.navigatingthelevelsoftrauma.com. Welcome to Point of Relation with Thomas Hubel, a podcast that illuminates the path to collective healing at the intersection of science and mysticism. In his conversations with visionaries, innovators, artists, and healers, Thomas invites guests into a relational experience that allows inspiration and innovation to emerge. This is The Point of Relation. Hello and welcome to The Point of Relation. This is Thomas Hubel. This is my podcast, and I'm delighted to discuss today my new book, Attuned with Amy Fox, a longtime friend and uh, colleague and uh, fellow spiritual journey uh, companion. So, Amy, most welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Thomas. It's so wonderful to be here and have a chance to learn more about the forthcoming book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm happy we're having these conversations. You went deeply steeped into into our work, and so you know it from inside. So it's a, a rich conversation, I guess. Wonderful. Why don't I start by just asking you, uh, what do you mean by attuned? And uh, given your decades of work as a healer and as a teacher, what inspired you to write this book at this time? Yeah, because I see that, you know, we talk a lot about relationships, but actually... The real relating, when we say it's not a relationship like a concept, it's a, a noun, it's actually a moment-to-moment process. And the moment-to-moment process is a data flow. When I relate to myself and when I feel my body, for example, I'm, it's like I'm putting my hand into a river. Like I'm, when I feel myself, I feel data flow because my nervous system channels a lot of data up and down my body in order to know how I'm doing, what I'm doing, how I'm feeling, and so on. And um, and so attunement to myself is like when you, attunement is like uh, hitting a tune with your own voice. So let's say you sing a song that you like, and you sing it in the exact uh, level of the, the singer. So you match the tune, and then it, seem, it creates a feeling of coherence. Well, when two singers on stage are very well attuned with their voices, you hear it as one bigger composition, not as two separate things. And so relating and connection is actually an active process moment to moment. It's not just because we are sitting here, we are related or connected. The connecting means that I tune in with you, you tune in with me. So I feel you, you feel me, and we both have a representation of each other inside our experience. And the more coherent is that inner representation, we call that intimacy or closeness or openness. And so attunement is like, or when you have two cars driving on the highway and you match the speed of the other car, you can open the window and talk. 
you know, because you, you, but if one is faster or slower, you don't can talk because it's too fast. And, um, and I think it often we don't attune to each other and that creates all kinds of issues in relationships because we're actually either too fast or too slow and we don't have real time to talk to each other because we are not driving at the same speed. That's maybe a, a short beginning of what's attunement. Beautiful. So you talked about some of the practices of attunement, feeling yourself slowing down to just sort of catch the rhythm of the other person. Can you say a little bit more about your methodology of transparent communication and how it helps people to practice attunement? Uh -huh. Yeah, one is one is self-contact. I think in order to be attuned to somebody, if it's not a very strong defense mechanism that we learned as children, that being hyper vigilant and hyper aware of the outside because that's what kept us safe so there are some people that don't feel themselves but they are very aware of what other people feel because they had to develop that defense mechanism not to get hurt so that's we need to say that too but usually um my self-contact which means self-attunement that I'm aware of my inner process, that there is an inner world, that I, I can really deeply get to know my body from inside, I can get to know my emotional richness, I can I can be attuned to my mental process, I can, I can also witness my own inner process, so it's not just completely identified in me, that I'm stuck as my thought, but I can witness that I'm thinking. So what's the part that's witnessing the thinking? What's the part that's witnessing my emotions? So there's a there's a kind of an awareness also that needs to be added. And so we call the coherence, and I also write in the book about that the coherence of my physical, emotional, mental data flow plus awareness is what we call the synchronization of the three, three sync. And we also have a three sync practice also in the book that helps us to synchronize the physical, emotional, mental experience more. And so I need to first be aware of myself, but then also now between us, there's not only air, there is information flowing. I feel you, you feel me, we can feel how open we are with each other or how closed we are sometimes. So that is is a, um, a this data between us. So it's not just an empty space. And it shows because when we are very open, our nervous system allows a lot of data to flow. When we are afraid or protected, then there's less data flowing. We feel more isolated. Even if there's another person in the room, we don't feel connected. So the space in between us shows us the dynamic of relational openness or closeness. And, and then I'm also, when I speak to you, I'm also feeling you. Because feeling you is that I, I get a sense of like how things land for you, which things don't land for you, which like what's the what's actually happening in you when I speak. And so often we we think, okay, self-expression is I throw into the room what I need, what I feel, who I am, or I'm doing expressing myself, but I feel you at the same time. And so transparent communication talks about the entire system of a relationship or a relational space or a group space, doesn't matter, and and the dynamics within that uh, relational space. So that's a short like framing maybe of transparent communication so that the 
process becomes more and more transparent to us so that it becomes more and more visible, palpable, what's actually happening in the room. Yeah. I've heard you sometimes talk about that as I, you, and we, that, you know, sort of an awareness of all three dimensions of the relationship. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that sometimes that kind of hypervigilance or overattention outside costs us the self-contact aspect of the of presencing and of attunement. And I wondered if that's a partial um, window into the link between your first book on healing trauma and healing collective trauma and this book on attunement. Could you talk a little about the relationship between trauma and how it interrupts attunement? Yeah, when we look at trauma is an overwhelming experience. So it's not it's like the, what we call trauma is what happens within us in the face of an overwhelming experience. So there's an overwhelming experience. My nervous system that holds the cap- capabilities of thousands and thousands of years of living, because we are not the only the only one that got traumatized. And many of our ancestors got traumatized too. So life developed what we call a trauma response. So the nervous system can basically, in this very stressful situation, shut down a part in order to survive better as, a, as, a, as an individual and also as a species. I think it's a, it's a very intelligent function for very adverse moments. But what happens when we shut down a part of ourselves, we actually shut down the function of our nervous system to resonate and feel life, to resonate with and to feel life. And, and the second thing is that most of the trauma has been created through inappropriate relationships. When a parent abuses a child, when somebody is sexually abused, there's all kinds of trauma that happens. They are worse. These are inappropriate relational spaces or conduct or actions or activities. And so hurt relation hurts relation. So we're actually passing on like an echo, woo, woo, we are passing on the hurt from one generation to the next generation, from one person to the next person. And and when we hurt each other, so when we violate violate ethical ethical boundaries or when we violate human rights, we are actually part of shutting down a relational capacity that then has a lot of after effects. And that's why um, any kind of violence, any kind of like war, like you take the Ukraine war at the moment, there there is such a tremendous damage being done to life. And any other war, of course, too, in Sudan, in Yemen, anywhere, in Afghanistan, there is such a tremendous damage being done through the trauma that will affect many generations to come. We are still sitting in the after effects of, of this trauma impact. And um, and I think that's why it's so important to work for world peace, to work for nonviolence, to find other solutions. But also, when where I don't feel life, I am actually also distant, numb, and disconnected from certain processes. So that's why the immune system in the world's also not activated because when the part is shut down, we actually don't do what we have to do sometimes in order to take care of things. Why are not Three billion people getting up and saying, we, we don't do this war. We will find another solution for this. We don't do this. But it's not happening. And it seems like, like a utopian when I say that. But I think the reason why that's not happening is because we are collectively so traumatized. And 
all around the world. And, and that's why the natural response, the natural ethical response, the protection of human rights is only part, partly working. Well, I just, it's just very touching what you're saying, like the repair of attunement will enable me to feel more of my life and to metabolize more of life. It will allow me to be more intimate with those around me, and it will activate my responsiveness to what's happening in the wider world. I mean, it's very dimensional what you're saying. It's very beautiful. Oh, very much so. And attunement is the number one, like relating is, and attuned relating is the number one remedy for trauma. It's like attuned relationships give a traumatized nervous system the ability to recalibrate itself because they are safe, they're attuned, they are not pushy, they are not distant, they're committed, they're uh, like warm and generous. So in warm and generous, committed, clear uh, relationships that are not pushy, like my nervous system can start to detox the trauma because suddenly it feels safer. When we feel safer, we can let go of pain. When we let go of pain, we digest pain, we integrate pain, we grow post-traumatic learning. And then if we create more attuned relational environments, we are actually constantly contributing to the self-healing mechanism of the world because that's based on attunement and presence. And, um, and that's why I think attunement is so important if we want to create also not just... Because for some trauma, we need professional therapists that are trained for years and they do this work for a long time. They can work with complex trauma also, they need attunement in their work, and they often train this for a long time. But I think we can also have a much higher collective competence of attunement that millions or billions of people at, in workplaces, in families, in, the, in our education system, in our medical system. How often do you see in hospitals that uh, medical professionals are completely unattuned to their patients, and the patients are kind of lost in their health crisis, and, and there is no real attunement to create safety. It, it, and it seems like that's a soft skill, but I think that's a complete misunderstanding of human relationships. Human relationships are not a soft skill that you learn by the way if you're a leader. Because as a, as a leader or a medical professional, you need relational skills to, to meet people in difficult situations, in crisis, when they are worried, when their health is not good. Like we need somebody who feels us to feel safe. And the word neuroception in neuroscience says that your nervous system recognizes when I feel you while I talk to you, it's registered as safety. Because when we feel felt, we feel safer. Because when somebody feels somebody, the chances to hurt somebody are way, way less. Because we can't hurt somebody that we feel. We only hurt each other when we don't feel each other. And so, yeah. That's beautiful. I mean, when you were describing, Thomas, the qualities of patience and listening and receiving, um, I, I thought of your model of sort of reflection, digestion, and integration, sort of these three dimensions of being the healing force for someone else, metabolizing their fear or metabolizing their hurt. I wonder if you could talk a little about that process. Um, but before I pass it to you, I really just want to honor that in your work with people, you give them that generous, unconditional love in such a beautiful way. And many of us have had a chance to really refine our ability to be that medicine for other people through working with you. So 
Thank you. No, that's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's exactly how you said that many of us are very busy. We have full lives. Life gets faster and faster. Like our from morning to evening, it's like we can fill our day. So digesting first even our daily experience sometimes doesn't happen because there is no time for it because the days are packed and then you are tired you go to sleep and of course when we sleep and dream we digest things but we often don't have practices to consciously digest what stays undigested and what cannot be digested the nervous system can pack into like a compartment and keep it there like a storage but from time to time, we need to empty the storage, otherwise it gets very crowded in there, and then the chronic stress level goes up and we can't relax anymore because our, our system is too full. So contemplative practices, yoga, tai chi, meditation, like even taking a walk, like having some space, taking a walk, listening to music, and let your inner world digest your experience is a very important detox practice. It's like, I believe it's the same like taking a shower to keep the body clean is to have some kind of contemplative practice to keep our psyche clean and and our nervous system healthy and our body healthy and but then on a deeper level trauma means that the experience that people have or that we had couldn't be digested when they or short after they happened so there is actually a package of undigested data that's circling somewhere in the person's unconscious, creating patterns because, and it's stuck in the time where it has been hurt. So when somebody got hurt at the age of three, there is a stuck data package somewhere in the, in the complexity of the nervous system stored with pain, with fear, with stress, with overwhelm. And we noticed it when we get triggered. And when we get triggered, somebody pushed that button and either it explodes or we become very distant and numb. Some people, when they are triggered, they are just numb and they don't speak or they are not related anymore because they pulled out the relationship. And, and so that's why we say trauma healing, in a way, is a process of attunement to together de-stress the system enough and create enough safety that a digestion process of the undigested material can start. And when the nervous system feels safer, when we feel safer, we also allow more stuff to come up. So if you have good relationships, we can digest together and feel together, which means that emotions, undigested emotions are separate. They seem they are stuck in me. I'm scared, often with no reason, but I'm scared. That fear has nothing to do with many moments in my day. That fear is something that replays itself in like a stuck CD. That I walk with. That I walk with. So maybe for decades I have these fears, but then they don't confirm. You know, it's not that there was really a tiger or a terrorist, and then that's why I was scared. Often we are scared, but for no good reason. Life shows us many times that the fear wasn't connected to the situation. So that's why... Hurt emotions seem like privatized. Healthy emotions are the connective tissue between us. So when, when you're afraid or I'm afraid and you feel me, I feel met in my fear and the fear becomes part of the connection. When somebody is angry and we can stay, we feel the person while they are angry, then the anger can become part, the sadness, the shame, whatever can become a, like a, a healed tissue 
not a separate wound, like a healed tissue. So emotions is, are actually the connective tissue in uh, humanity, or also in, most probably in animals, in mammals, for example. But the the um, the the point that I'm making is that when when we recreate spaces together, or relational capacities, where we feel again felt, then we begin to we can reflect together. We can become aware of stuff. We can slowly digest that stuff, and we can. And when we digest, like with food, food gets integrated into the body. Then the nutrients become the body. So the trauma content, when it's getting integrated, actually gets in, like, gets integrated into the nervous system and becomes post-traumatic learning. So my perspective on life grows. I become wiser, become more mature, become more open, more relational. Many things that many people really desire in their life actually happen when we have an appropriate environment to integrate this old wound. Yeah, and, and you talk about one of the costs of us not having that sort of quality of transparency, community, belonging, is that we, we don't feel each other and we don't feel the planet. Um, I wonder if you could say a little bit about the lack of attunement to the wider uh, ecosystem. Yeah, it's the same. Like where 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 I'm related, I care for my environment. I'm a caring citizen in my community, in my country. I I or I don't know. Every every parent, when you're part, when you're a parent, you need to be part of like a healthy food system. You need to be part of a healthy education system. You need to be part of many systems. So you start to care as a mature citizen. How is the level of education? What actually is happening there? What's happening with the food that we consume? What's happening in different systems in order to create a, a healthy environment for our ch children to flourish? And and I think that that kind of care comes when we when we feel something. When we don't feel something or when we are constantly bombarded through news with all kinds of the war here, the war in Yemen, the war in Sudan, the the crisis here, the the climate crisis impact there, like there's so the school shooting here, it's there's so many dramatic um, information packages that are circulating with the speed of light around the planet, like it's it's um, it's we need to have a certain practice not only that we carry also trauma we are bombarded with trauma content and the way how to deal with this is to not feel then i'm intellectually engaged i know what cnn says but it doesn't mean that i feel what cnn says because to feel emotionally and in my body not just my own upheaval or my own disturbance about it that's one part but to feel the situation, that's often not what's happening because it's too overwhelming. And it's okay that it's too overwhelming. I think we just need to create more collective awareness that a lot of the processes that are happening in our society are happening without our collective felt awareness. And that's the recipe for it to continue the way it is. Because unconscious processes are bound to repeat themselves. Freud already said this, the repetition compulsion of trauma. What we are not aware of is bound to repeat. And so when we culturally are not aware of certain parts in our society, 
because we are living in this box of hyper-individualism, especially in the West often, then many things, human trafficking, criminal rates, racism, anti-Semitism, these things, like this is continuing because we are not there. We are not fully engaged. We are not fully engaged to stop certain things that are not okay. And it recreates the, the vicious trauma cycle around the world. And so that's true, that it's it's also part of my attunement. It's not just to myself or to other people, it's the attunement to my workplace. It's when I feel my workplace, I'm much more engaged in my workplace because I'm I'm part, I feel like I'm part of it. I'm not just coming, doing my work, leaving. I'm creating relationships, it's meaningful, I'm belonging to a social network. And the same is true for society. Either I'm just complaining about uh, what's happening in the world, or I'm I'm taking responsibility. I see when I complain, I don't move. People, I often say, people that complain don't move, and people that move don't complain. If I contribute something creative to society, then I'm I'm moving. See, I see an issue, and so what can I do, or what can we do, or what can I support in the world that can help with that, instead of complaining about it. There's no big daddy that should save us. There is, we are, we are mature people that need to take certain things into our hand or support other people to do things that they can do better than we, but at least be supportive to building solutions. And uh, it's very powerful what you're saying. And I'm sure for many of us listening, there's many things that are happening in the world that are alarming and weigh heavily in our hearts. And to start to understand that this cultivating this quality of attunement is to start the repair process not just in my own life, but in what I can serve uh, in life, um, it feels very profound to me. And I, it, it, um, in the book, you talk about relational mysticism, which is really, in a way, uh, a phrase that encapsulates the depth and wisdom of the work that you're bringing, these sort of links between repairing trauma and repairing the world um, and bringing in more light to the world. I wonder if you could talk a little about what you mean at its depth about relate, what, that, what does that mean, relational mysticism? Yeah, I'm a big fan of of like practicing our spiritual practice. Mysticism is like uh, the mystical science is the this the core of of all kinds of big traditions. Had a mystical core. These are the people that were very connected to the essence of the practices and why they work. They did. They understood why these practices make sense because they put a lot of energy or often their whole life into practicing and that develops like a certain competence. Mm -hmm. So some of these mystics in different traditions and you see descriptions in Christianity, in the yoga tradition, you see it in Sufism, you see it in Kabbalah, you see it in shamanism, you see it in all kinds in Taoism, Tibetan Buddhism. They're the inner teachings that are really about the deep practices to deepen our conscious awareness, to grow as people, to develop more love, more compassion, to change our inner worlds into a more free, open, connected, awake uh, inner world. These practices, they are not just happening by accident. They, there is a, there's a kind of an, what I call it in the inner science of these practices. So, and I believe like some of these practices have been designed for monasteries for caves, for people that in a way renounce their life in the world and 
and spent their life, they made a decision to go into solitude or into a monastery and to practice something very deeply, which is great. I think to make that decision is great. But many of us that are hearing this now are not sitting in a cave. We are not sitting most probably in a monastery. So we are living in the world, we're living in society, we are living, you know, with all, maybe we are parents, we have jobs, we, we are dealing with climate change. And so we need, I believe, a spiritual practice that is deeply relational and that makes relating and our life in the social body our practice. And that's, and I think that sometimes different practices needed. That's why I think living in the world needs a trauma integration practice because otherwise I get constantly triggered by people, by situations. It's difficult. I dislike certain people. I polarize. I other. I, I can do many things that I'm sometimes not even aware of, how biased I am and what I contribute to the world without even knowing that I'm doing that. And and so I think that when we when we take the essence of the mystical traditions and apply it to the marketplace, what I call the marketplace, life, our daily lives in society, we have to adapt some of the practices. And some spiritual practitioners they practice practices that are actually designed for monasteries, which can create in their life a bit of a disturbance, and it actually makes us weaker in life. It helps us to develop certain consciousness capacities, but it doesn't necessarily help us to ground those and become a change factor in, in our society, so to, to support the evolution of our world. And I think when we commit, everybody can decide to go to a monastery, and once we, and that's not an easy decision for most of the people. So that's why only a few do it. And then it's great. Then you have a set of practices. But in in society, I think being in a relational environment all the time, when we work, when we are parents, when we are lovers, when we are uh, citizens, I think we relationship relating and relationships have to become a central part of our practice. Beautiful. It's like an awakeness in the fabric of life. That's what I hear. Exactly. Exactly. Um, when you talk in the book about uh, individual, ancestral, and collective fluidity as one of these competencies that you're sort of pointing to and describing, um, that feels like a very uh, important new idea uh, in the healing world. Uh, because one of the things you've been pioneering is really asking us to look not just at our own individual life story, but it, to look longitudinally at our lineage and to look more broadly at how we're part of a collective, um, both uh, carrying lineages of trauma, but also potentially part of a repair process, a restorative process. Could you talk a little about what you call IAC? Even the term trauma is still making its way into our mainstream society, let's say. Although neuroscience, trauma science, psychology, social sciences, some of them start to adopt this term because we see, or also medicine start to adopt this term deeper and deeper in the last decades because it's so significant for many health issues, mental health issues. So trauma is a really important understanding of certain processes inside that we can work with once we understand them much better than before. So, um, so it's making its way into society. Now, though, I think Trauma is being related to soldiers, people who have accidents, and people to, that went through severe traumatizations in their childhood, maybe. But 
I believe that's all true, obviously, but when we see trauma in in a in a hyper individualized world, we there is a tendency to see it as an individual process, and I would say. That's not true. Trauma is a systemic issue that has individual consequences. Mm. So that, of course, individuals get hurt often. As we speak here, most probably it happens millions of times around the planet. But, for example, when children experience attachment trauma, trauma in their relationship with their parents, because they're neglected, they're hurt, there's domestic violence, alcoholism, abuse. So that happens because the parents are... lack of attention. Yeah, it happens because the the parents are traumatized. Most probably, their parents were traumatized. And look at how many post-war societies actually have high rates of domestic violence, and there are all kinds of traumatizations that are the echo of the war trauma, and and or racism. Four hundred years of ongoing traumatizations. It's it's super painful. And, and it's still going on. It's not that it stopped and now we are just dealing with the wounds. No, it's, it's happening. And so there's this recurrent cycle that um, I believe needs to be seen as a systemic issue. Trauma is a systemic design factor. It designs our societies. And we have to learn to see trauma as a systemic uh, um, factor that we all live in. It's like... There's a substance in the water that we all grew up in. Some of us inhaled more of it, maybe some of us less, but it's systemic and it's in different cultures around the world you find it. There's not, oh, this part of the world is great, there's no trauma, and this part of the world is very traumatized. No, it's universal. universal. And, and I think only when we see that we normalized, because we grew up in a, tr- a partly traumatized society, our teachers had some of it, our parents had some of it, our grandparents, politicians, like we see it all the time. So we see trauma symptoms, but we say sometimes, oh, that's how life is. And I would say, no, that's not how life is. That's how life is when it's hurt. Many things that we see in daily life, when you watch the traffic, when you see how people treat each other on the street or in supermarkets or in all kinds of places, in institutions, how foreigners are being treated in, in, in different countries, how we treat people that have different color of skin, that have a different, I don't know, the, like cultural background. Like there's a lot of stuff happening and and the trauma is systemic. and And only when we begin to see trauma as a systemic factor and as an as an intergenerational process that many people that were in the holocaust and survived that you can see how the next generations carry the trauma residues in themselves although they haven't been in the holocaust but they got it with the mother milk you know or with the sperm we we got it like through epigenetics we got it through the way we relate to each other, and we got it through um, the psychological environment at home, and we got it through the psychological environment in the country. So that trauma is actually a multifaceted, layered experience. It has an individual process, but it's always, as I say, I, I, infinity, A. It's like collective. I, infinity, 
which means every individual is inherently interdependent with its ecosystem that it arises out of. That means all the resources we carry inside that the ecosystem has, but also the trauma that the ecosystem has lives inside of us. And it's not just in an individual box, it's the whole it's individual, ancestral, and collective. And I think if we can expand our vision, I think we will accelerate the collective healing process much more. And and that and I call it fluidity because I don't like the word method, because method puts us often into a box. I learn this method and then I apply it. <laughs> and I would say no, I learn process capabilities and capacities and skills. And the process is fluid. Methods become a bit stuck concepts about and then I try to apply a concept onto a situation that actually needs a bit, needs more attunement to be refined. And of course, there are, there are things we can learn about trauma, collective trauma, ancestral trauma, and we have to learn it. But the application is a fluid relational process. And, and the other reason why I call it fluidity is because of trauma healing is liquefying the ice in individuals, intergenerational data streams, and, and the society. And when the ice becomes fluid, then there's more change, there's more responsiveness, there's more responsibility, there's more participation, there's more relational coherence, there's many things, there's more presence. So we're actually liquefying the permafrost in our cultures or in ourselves. And the more fluid they become, the more we can literally change with life. And we see now with climate change, we, we are actually changing kind of too slow, but it's because of the gravity of the systemic trauma that can't respond to change, that doesn't want to change because it wants to be frozen. That's its its purpose. Yeah, that touches me so much. It's like you can't heal, heal frozen life with a mechanistic application of a methodology. You have to cultivate the aliveness and the vitality and the attunement to be emergent and dialogical with what you're trying to heal or respond to. Beautiful. Um, just to close us, Thomas, I'm sure many people will be very moved by what you're sharing and, um, and, and look to the book for rich resources. Could you give us just one thing people might do or start to practice to increase the kind of attunement you're inviting us to with themselves, with each other, and with life? Yeah, I think there are two things. First, um, like a curiosity in matching movement. So when I drive with a car, there's another car, let's say on the highway, and I play with driving as fast, driving a bit faster, a bit slower, and I get a feeling of what that means. I get a feeling of what it means that we are at the same speed, and at the same speed, it looks like as if you're standing beside each other, even if you're driving with 100 kilometers an hour. We actually, it seems like still between the cars. So matching movements, when you sit on a plane to feel the movement of a plane, when you sit, when you listen to music and you want to match a tune with your own voice and you learn to match, that's a tune. That's the organic language of life. Resonance is the universal language of life. When you, when you feel a tree, when you feel a situation, when you listen to somebody that speaks and you feel the person deeper and you listen deeper, you're actually attuning to their movement. 
to their life experience, to their inner movements, to their outer movements. So you get a sense. And being interested in in that movement, like when I feel you, my movement, which is perception, data flow, all I know about myself is flowing data. And all I know about you is flowing data too. So my perception, perception is data flow. So one data flow communicates and feels another data flow. So we're actually like in a river, we're actually merging two rivers into a mutual flow. And that's precise attunement. And that and that applied for therapists means we are precisely attuned to different levels of development that our clients bring to us. So that's one practice. The other practice is that in order to attune more, I need to learn to develop more presence in myself, which means I learn to maybe slow down a bit my exhalations. I connect with every exhalation to my body. I feel how staying one, two, three minutes just with exhaling a bit slower, longer, it calms down my nervous system. And then I, I can feel more of my body. As my nervous system relaxes, I start to feel more. I become more reflective. I, I can digest better. So I learned to do this multiple times during a day, just for a few minutes or even just for one minute. Breathe, slow down by breathing a bit. My body, notice where my body is most lively, most energized, present, where I feel myself well, which parts of my body I, I inhabit well. And and I create a deeper connection. It's like when I when you play a guitar or like a piano, you need to tune that piano because if it's not tuned, it doesn't sound good. So we need to learn to use the instrument of our body to practice attunement because my whole body is like an instrument, a music instrument. And because my whole body is full of my nervous system. And when my body feels your body, I start to be in tune with your physical reality. And my emotions resonate with your emotions. We, I feel what you feel before you tell me what you feel. And then if you tell me what it feels great, but if somebody's afraid, we can feel that the person is afraid. I don't need a translation like a Google translate through my mind. And it can happen directly. And I think all of these are lovely practices to get more grounded, to become more present, to become more mindful. And the more presence we experience, the easier it gets to attune to life, to be in tune with life, to sing with the music or the orchestra of life. How wonderful. So thank you so much for this rich conversation, Thomas. And for anybody listening, the Thomas's new book, Good Tunes, will be available on September 12th. We hope you'll look for it and share it with your friends and community. May it be a deeply restorative healing instrument of this work, finding its way to many more people, Tom. Thank you, Amy, and thank you for this conversation. Yeah, it's very generous. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Point of Relation with Thomas Hoover. Stay connected by visiting our website, pointofrelationpodcast.com, and by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review and share about us with your community on social media. Thank you. We appreciate your support.